we convene this subcommittee today to discuss American policy towards Tunisia. You might ask, why is a Senate subcommittee that has jurisdiction over nearly a third of the world is holding a hearing on a country that's just a little bit bigger than Indiana? Um, the answer is pretty simple. Um, Tunisia is a country that for a long time showed what was possible in the Middle East and North Africa. It was a country that had seemingly gotten it right and was able to stay on a democratic path while transitions faltered in Egypt and Libya and Yemen. Tunisia drafted a new constitution, held multiple free and fair elections. After a really high-profile series of terrorist attacks, Tunisian security forces, with the support of the United States, increased their capacity to protect the country, but also balanced protecting civil liberties, civil society groups, independent media, proliferated, exercising their newfound rights to hold Tunisia's leaders accountable. But amidst all of this progress, institutional reforms and accountability initiatives, they really stalled and economic conditions worsened. Widespread corruption persisted, public services got worse, there was police brutality left and right, and the political elites were just squabbling. It ended up being a pretty terrible advertisement for democracy. Tunisian people saw what democracy looked like and they didn't love it. It was in this context that President Kai Saeed promised Tunisians that he was going to fix this mess that many Tunisians had grown really tired of. Um, when I first met President Saeed uh, in Tunisia in August of 2021, he told me and our delegation that his intent was not to get rid of democracy, but that he was just going to fix the problem of Tunisia having adopted the wrong kind of democracy, the wrong model, and he was just going to bring a model that worked. But I'm going to be honest, in that same meeting, I saw all the trappings of a despot in waiting. President Saeed was self-adulating, saying that he was the only one pure enough to lead. Everybody else was tainted and corrupt. He was conspiratorial about dark enemies he saw around every corner. He bristled at public criticism, telling me no less than three times that his seizure of power was not a coup. I left that meeting pretty convinced that Tunisia was likely headed in the wrong direction. And unfortunately, over the last 21 months, my worst fears have borne to be true. Since that meeting, President Saeed has followed a dictator's handbook, almost to the letter, disbanding parliament, writing a new constitution that consolidates his power, disbanding judicial independence and employing military tribunals, arresting members of the opposition, including just recently this week, um, treason charges for the leader, the, the leader of the primary opposition. These are not the actions of a leader who intends to restore democracy just under a different model. Um, under, over the last 21 months that President Saeed has been steadily dismantling Tunisian democracy, the U.S. policy, unfortunately, has been hesitant. I would argue that it's been half-hearted and often naive. By failing to draw hard lines in the sand, Saeed has felt confident in taking one step after another to consolidate power and ignore polite requests from American diplomats to change course. We're talking about Tunisia and only Tunisia today because I would argue that this is a place for the United States to correct course when it comes to our tendency to talk a tough game on human rights and democracy, but then not really lead by example. 
We cut deals with dictators. We sell billions of dollars of weapons to dangerous autocrats. We send regular signals that there are few consequences for your political and economic relationship with the United States if you move from democracy to repression. And so I argue that this is a hearing in which, through the prism of Tunisia policy, we can also talk about how we can't afford this duality, talk tough but act often too weakly on human rights and democracy. So we're going to ask these questions today, how we can adjust our assistance policies so that we are supporting the Tunisian people and their ability to speak freely and to hold their leaders accountable. We're going to ask how we can empower our <laughs> diplomats uh, to do that work inside Tunisia. But lastly, I hope that we are also going to talk about China because any time that I argue that we should be reforming our partnerships with dictators in the region, whether it be Saudi Arabia, Egypt, UAE, or Tunisia, the counter that I often hear is that well, if we don't extend that hand, no matter how repressive the regime is, China's going to fill the void. But I think we have to realize that not everything is a zero-sum game in our competition with China, and that we don't have to make deeper commitments to authoritarians just because China is making a competing offer. I think the best way to compete with China is not to try to beat China in a race to the human rights bottom. If China can only do deep economic deals with countries in which the IMF deems to be unbankable, that's a pretty bad long-term prospect for Chinese economic diplomacy. And so I would argue that Tunisia is a critical test case to change tack and to back up our words with actions. And so I'm looking forward to this discussion with uh, our very uh, able guests today. And with that, I'll turn to the ranking member. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing. I, I want to thank uh, our witnesses for being here today to uh, help us shed a light uh, on, on the erosion of, of democratic institutions in Tunisia and the rise, once again, of authoritarian regimes uh, in, in that country. I, I greatly appreciate your participation. Uh, Ms. Doherty, I, I know we've had an opportunity to work together uh, when you were with Mercy Corps. Uh, thank you for serving our country in this capacity. And, and Mr. Harris, thank you for uh, your career service uh, of the State Department and uh, our country. As the Biden administration is proud to point out its defense of democracy in places such as Ukraine, I can't help but observe its noticeable silence in other key areas, such as the Biden administration failing to mention the resistance in Myanmar to the military junta during its recent summit for democracy, and failing to respond to the authoritarians in Tunisia, which is what we're here to discuss today. Following the Tunisian revolution in 2011, when the people rose up against corruption and the lack of freedoms in their country, they inspired actions that sought to bring democracy to Tunisia and inspired the Arab Spring, which swept across the Arab world. However, since 2019, President Saeed has increasingly tightened his grip on power. In recent weeks, he's dismantled institutional checks and balances, developed a new constitution, and taken Tunisia back in an authoritarian direction. Today, I hope we hear from our witnesses what actions, not just words, that we're, uh, we're going to see from the administration to meaningfully counter Tunisia's current traje 
trajectory. While I'm sure our witnesses will point to the reductions for Tunisia and the president's budget request to Congress, I don't think we should be naive enough to think that minor budgetary reductions will be sufficient to get the attention of President Saeed. Of course, this conversation is complicated by Tunisia's support for our counterterrorism activities in North Africa, which in my view is precisely why we must get the government back into a place of better behavior. The urgency of reversing this erosion of democratic institutions couldn't be more relevant to our own national security. As with other topics and geographies that we've discussed in this subcommittee, China's again present in Tunisia. Beijing, of course, doesn't reinforce any of these messages about democratic backsliding or protecting institutions. The authoritarians in Tunis are happy to welcome Huawei into their system and are also partnering on various R&D partnerships with Beijing. All of this points to a deeply uncertain future for the Tunisian people. President Saeed may attempt to blame others, but the people of Tunisia must know that their troubles are a direct result of the failures of their own government. While the Tunisian people have risen up before, I, I pray that they won't have to rise up again. If we're able to work together with our like-minded partners, I'm confident that we can help bring the government back into uh, a better behavior. Again, I'm pleased that we are here to discuss such an important issue, and I look forward to uh, the conversation, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you very much, Senator Young. Uh, let me now introduce our witnesses. Um, first, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Mr. Joshua Harris, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for North Africa in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs, previously served as Director for North African Affairs at the NSC, as well as holding other positions in the State Department in Libya, Tunisia, um, Iraq, Slovenia, and Croatia. Um, also joining us today is Ms. Megan Doherty. Um, Senator Young mentioned her service at Mercy Corps and NDI, uh, but she also has held positions at the National Security Council and the State Department working in the Middle East and North Africa. She is here in her capacity as Deputy Assistant Administrator of the Bureau for the Middle East at USAID. Uh, I'll hand the floor over to both of you for your opening comments, and then we'll engage in a discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Chairman Murphy, Ranking Member Young, Senator Kane. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to share the Department of State's assessment of the situation in Tunisia. While a fundamental commitment to the Tunisian people in line with US values and interests endures uh, in unbreakable friendship, Secretary Blinken has spoken very clearly uh, to the reversal of many of the Tunisian people's hard-won democratic gains over the past 21 months. The actions of the Tunisian government have impacted every aspect of our relationship. The Department of State continues to adapt to the dramatically altered landscape in Tunisia since July 25th of 2021, and working very closely with allies and partners to marshal all diplomatic tools, including recalibrated foreign assistance to advance our objectives. In this unsettled environment, the United States has significant interests that guide our diplomacy forestalling an economic collapse that would further destabilize the situation in Tunisia and regionally, including for our NATO allies, promoting democratic and constitutional governance that is able to safeguard the rule of law, to promote respect for human rights and secure the fundamental freedoms Tunisians cherish, challenging the pernicious attempts of our adversaries to exploit the country's upheaval, 
and sustaining critical cooperation with the Tunisian military, provided it remains apolitical and professional, in order to pressure terrorist networks and maintain support for U.S. and allied activities. Most immediately, Tunisia is confronting a spiraling economic emergency. The Tunisian government, in response last year, developed a rigorous reform program, which enabled Tunisia to conclude an IMF staff-level agreement in October of 2022 on a $1.9 billion support package. As President Saeed has indicated publicly, he has decided not to move forward with crucial reforms, even as international partners have stepped forward with more than $1 billion to bolster Tunisia's reform efforts. A Tunisia that unravels economically cannot be an environment in which democratic governance can flourish, nor one in which other vital U.S. interests can be effectively advanced. For this reason, Secretary Blinken, Assistant Secretary Leaf, Ambassador Hood, among others, have emphasized to Tunisian counterparts that the United States will support Tunisia in implementing its reform program negotiated with the IMF if it chooses to do so. Whether and how Tunisia opts to proceed is a sovereign choice that only President Said can make. An IMF program cannot be imposed. Concurrent with this economic crisis, Tunisia is experiencing profound political changes. A consolidation of executive power has now been formalized through a referendum marked by low voter turnout. The judiciary has faced significant pressures amid the arrests and prosecutions of perceived government critics, business leaders, political activists, and journalists. Taken together, the past 21 months in Tunisia have, as Secretary Blinken has said, borne witness to an alarming erosion of democratic norms. The department has and will continue to condemn politically motivated arrests, both in our private diplomatic engagements and publicly. The arrests by the Tunisian government of opponents and critics are a troubling escalation, fundamentally at odds, with a Tunisian constitution that explicitly guarantees the freedom of opinion, thought, and expression. Within hours of the emergency declaration, Secretary Blinken engaged President Saeed directly to share our alarm about the consolidation of executive power. Over the past 21 months, U.S. officials at all levels have reinforced that our relationship is strongest when there is a shared respect for democratic principles, for human rights, and for fundamental freedoms. And the department continues to consult broadly with international voices in support of a democratic and prosperous future for all Tunisians. The department is continuously reviewing all aspects of U.S. diplomacy, including our foreign assistance programs, to ensure alignment with U.S. policy goals. Since July of 2021, and amid our deep concerns about democratic governance, the State Department has recalibrated U.S. programs to reflect the changed landscape and to ensure consistency with our interests and values. The President, in fiscal year 2024, has therefore reduced the top-line budget request for Tunisia by 65%. The president's budget request reinforces an unambiguous message that there can be no business as usual amid this crisis. The recalibration has sought to ensure what economic and development assistance continues is directly benefiting the Tunisian people, including crucial investments in civil society. U.S. assistance represents targeted, life-improving investments for Tunisians in need, which reflects that economic and political empowerment are fundamentally linked. The department's relationship with Tunisians who serve their country in uniform is targeted to U.S. interests. A guiding principle remains engaging the vital, uh, on the vital national interests of protecting U.S. Dip diplomatic personnel and facilities, the welfare of American citizens, and neutralizing the continuing threat of terrorism while promoting respect for the rule of law. It remains in the U.S. interest to see a secure and prosperous Tunisia, led in a manner accountable to the people that can deliver economic stability and protect the fundamental freedoms of all. We will continue to speak frankly with the Tunisian government about its actions and policies and align our diplomacy with U.S. interests and values in the spirit of long-term friendship between the American and Tunisian people. 
Thank you for the opportunity to address the subcommittee today, and I look forward to your questions. Chairman Murphy, Ranking Member Young, Senator Kane, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today about the role of the U.S. Agency for International Development in supporting the Tunisian people. Tunisia's future feels increasingly tenuous. The Tunisian people find their democracy and fundamental freedoms endangered at the same time that their economy is significantly struggling. Despite the downward trajectory and the disillusionment of many Tunisians with their political leaders since 2011, a recent poll shows that more than 70% of Tunisians believe democracy is still the best form of governance and there is still an active and vibrant civil society. Our strategy is to invest in the Tunisian people and their resilience to both political and economic shocks. In response to the democratic backsliding, we pivoted our assistance to work directly with the Tunisian people and we are committed to supporting Tunisians' democratic aspirations while also helping them address the very real economic challenges that they face today. Right now, inflation is at a four-decade high. Food prices and food insecurity are on the rise, and more than a third of Tunisians under the age of 35 are unemployed. As the economy continues to contract, the number of Tunisians attempting to migrate to Europe has surged five-fold since 2019. USAID's investments in the Tunisian private sector are targeted to support the Tunisians that are trying to rescue their economy. And we know that these investments work. Thanks to the generosity of Congress over the last four years, our economic growth work has helped more than 44,000 Tunisian small businesses increase their sales by more than $580 million. This work has created 48,000 new sustainable jobs, two-thirds of which are held by women. The current economic crisis is of particular risk to Tunisia's most vulnerable, especially in the marginalized cities outside the capital. Last year, we provided $60 million to UNICEF to help Tunisian families keep food on the table and keep their kids in school. Just last week, we partnered with the World Bank to offset the rising food insecurity caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Beyond the economy, USAID is also working to support Tunisian civil society to protect the integrity of democratic processes and to combat mis- and disinformation. The goal here is not just to support Tunisians in their current crisis, but also to invest in the core pillars needed for a healthy, sustainable democracy for Tunisia's future. The dissolution of parliament and municipal councils, decrees limiting freedoms, politically motivated arrests, these have all had a real chilling effect on Tunisian civil society. And yet, they continue to organize bravely in the face of growing threats. For example, for the December 2022 legislative elections, USAID supported 90% of the domestic and international observers who monitored and reported not only on electoral issues, but also hate speech and misinformation. In the July 2022 national referendum, it was USAID-supported partners who caught erroneous voting data from the Election Commission, publicly called for corrections, and succeeded in getting the commission to publicize all of their counting data. With presidential and local elections on the horizon, domestic observer groups are already organizing and advocating for a more inclusive, accessible electoral process. USAID has also been invested investing in countering the dangerous rise in mis- and disinformation that we've seen across the country. Our partners are, have trained more than 100 journalists and reached more than 700,000 Tunisians with countering disinformation campaigns. They've also launched initiatives to dispel rumors to make sure that Tunisians have timely, accurate information. The democratic and economic threats facing Tunisia are significant, but so too is the distance that the country and its people have come in the decade after 2011. 
Despite the real risks facing Tunisia's economy and democracy, many Tunisians are leading the hard work to recover the economy and to protect their rights and freedoms. We will continue to stand with them and support them. Thank you for the opportunity to address the subcommittee on this important issue, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you very much to both of you for your testimony. Um, Mr. Harris, a couple times in your testimony, you refer to the military as um, being apolitical or having an apolitical reputation. Um, it's noteworthy that all of the diminution in aid in this budget comes from non-military assistance. And, and so the question is whether that is still an accurate assessment of the Tunisian military. Remember, it was the military that shut the doors of parliament upon President Saeed's order. Not, you know, this, this is not apples to apples, but it's roughly the equivalent of the U.S. military assisting the January 6th protesters in their assault on the Capitol. I mean, they were front and center in the shutdown of democracy. And since then, they have regularly appeared at President Saeed's side as he issues the decrees that consolidate his power. Um, so how do we come to the conclusion that we are sending a message, as you said in your testimony, that it's not business as usual when we continue full funding or flat funding of the security assistance while at the same time the security forces seem to be participating in this crackdown on democracy and political speech? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the first thing I would say is that the consolidation of executive power and the overall political trajectory you described uh, is an assessment that we share. It is one that uh, we have engaged directly with the Tunisian government on, that Secretary Blinken has engaged with President Saeed directly uh, on at all levels. Um, with regard to our specific assistance figures as reflected in the President's 2024 budget request, um, we have uh, requested reductions uh, across the board within Tunisia, uh, including with respect to our security assistance. Our request is uh, approximately halved, uh, which in our judgment reflects an unambiguous message uh, that there simply cannot be a business as usual so long as the concurrent economic and political crises that are playing out in Tunisia continue, and moreover, the tangible steps in Tunis to restore confidence in the country's democratic trajectory are needed, needed to enable the strongest possible uh, bilateral relationship, including with the Tunisian military. At the same point, the activities that we are undertaking uh, with the professional uh, women and men of the Tunisian armed forces are focused very specifically on, on vital U.S. interests. These are programs that address the safety of U.S. diplomatic personnel and facilities, uh, that address the well-being of American citizens in Tunisia, that seek to sustain pressure on uh, terrorist groups uh, that threaten Tunisia and, through Tunisia, our allies and partners, um, and that also seek to promote a culture of respect for the rule of law and accountability. Uh, within the security forces. The concerns about attempted politicization are ones that we fully share, um, and we are continuing to address that very directly, uh, both at a political level and directly with the Tunisian Armed Forces to ensure that they remain professional um, and uh, fulfill their constitutional mandate. Uh, let me just clarify, your, your current budget request for 24 does not request flat funding for military security aid, or do I have that wrong? You're, you do not, you're, you're not asking for a reduction in military funding to Tunisia. 
since the events of July 25th of 2021, uh, we have adjusted every aspect uh, of our assistance request, including with respect to security assistance. Correct. That's So last year's budget passed by Congress reduced assistance to Tunisia, but this year's request from the administration foresees continued funding at 23 levels for the military, but on the other hand, requests reductions in funding for civil society and human rights. I mean, this is the part that I don't understand, and this is my question to you, Mr. Artie. You, you know, gave a pretty sunny description of the state of U.S. support for Tunisian civil society, but I'm looking at a budget that is contemplating a reduction of funding for civil society and for human rights and a maintenance of funding for the very institutions that are standing side by side with Saeed in his campaign of repression. So how does that send a signal to the Tunisian people that we're with them? And and be fair with us because I understand the complexities of this. Um, we can't pick our partners all the time. Um, much of this money has to run through institutions that the president may um, control. And so you know, share with us if there are practical limitations to our ability to get money to the right players to support civil society, or whether this is actually a strategic decision by the administration to reduce funding to civil society while maintaining funding for security. Thank you. And while I'm very, very proud of the investments that we've made and the work that our Tunisian partners are doing on the ground right now in this moment of economic and democratic crisis, in no means do I mean to understate the challenges that they face, um, that are facing our partners right now. It is not a rosy picture. And as it relates to our relationship with Tunisian civil society, you know, we are not walking away. We've been working with them since 2011. Uh, and I would say despite the very real challenges they face, they're one of the bright spots in this moment. So while the FY24 budget, it, it does reflect a proportional decrease, we're actually about to launch a new $25 million program of support to Tunisian civil society that's gonna work with organizations across the country, including in some of the more historically underrepresented and marginalized regions. And at the same time, we're also coordinating with other donors who also have significant interests in Tunisia and share our approach to make sure that we're identifying and filling gaps and that we're deconflicting and coordinating assistance across the board to make sure that Tunisian civil society gets the support that it needs. Uh, thank you. Ms. Uh, Ms. Doherty, you just mentioned coordination with other donors, and, and uh, that sort of helps me uh, zoom out uh, as, as, as a reminder uh, to, to anyone who may be attentive to these proceedings. Uh, there are, we have partners in, throughout Africa, throughout the North Africa sort of region that uh, can help us influence the government of, of, of Tunisia. Uh, and, and, and I think to the extent we can leverage those relationships that will advance our own objectives of, of ensuring not just stability in the region, but trying to uh, bring the leadership of Tunisia in a position of better behavior. So I ask both witnesses, to what extent is the United States engaging some of our partners in Europe and uh, in Africa to come up with a multilateral and, and coordinated strategy uh, in our approach to Tunisia. 
Senator, uh, coordination with our allies and partners is a central aspect of our diplomacy. That is especially the case on a very difficult problem set as is playing out in Tunisia right now. Um, even today, uh, I was in coordination with a number of European partners about specific issues uh, in, in Tunisia. Um, the Secretary uh, has been in touch with his counterparts across Europe, uh, the Middle East, North Africa, Africa. Uh, what we've heard in those conversations is uh, a shared concern about the instability, uh, both economically and politically, that is playing out in the country right now. Uh, that instability uh, risks not being confined to Tunisia itself, uh, but for a number of our friends and partners, uh, they see the potential for this to, to destabilize more broadly, to spill out across Tunisian, Tunisia's borders. And for that reason, that has animated like a very serious international effort to bring a multitude of voices to bear on this problem. There are different degrees of influence, different relationships that different actors across Europe, the Middle East, and Africa have uh, with the Tunisian government, with others with influence. Um, so uh, a core priority for our diplomacy has been to uh, seek to align those conversations um, and to bring a, a broad range of voices uh, to bear on a very challenging sure. situation. So, so as we seek alignment, are there key areas, either Mr. Harris or, or Ms. Doherty, of divergence uh, where uh, we're attempting to achieve more alignment, mind, alignment more harmonization, and, and have greater effect on the uh, behavior of, of the current Tunisian regime? On the assistance side, we've seen tremendous alignment, actually. I would argue that this crisis has helped us strengthen our coordination. There's a very strong coordinated donor community, uh, particularly around democratic processes, elections, civil society support. Uh, we have an active working group both in Tunis and also constant communication between capitals. I'm actually getting on a plane on Monday to go to Brussels and meet with my EU counterparts, and we'll be raising this issue with them as well. Thank you. Uh, Tunisia signed an MOU with China in 2018 to be included in the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, it's been a debt crisis looming, and uh, we've recently seen China reducing its uh, investments in Africa, particularly where investments have underperformed or, or been threatened by some measure of instability. We've also seen China signal that it's disinclined to help Tunisia. Uh, should it fail to secure a loan from the IMF. Uh, Ms. Mr. Harris, can you describe uh, the risk of Tunisia uh, moving further into China's orbit as, as you see it? Do the circumstances uh, <clears throat> of, of this uh, suggest that perhaps the U.S. can use some of its leverage to influence Tunisia for the better uh, without risking uh, the country turning to Beijing? Senator, what we are uh, witnessing in Tunisia is uh, the very pernicious attempts of our adversaries, uh, including the PRC, to seek to exploit the simultaneous crises that are playing out in Tunisia. Um, we see that in terms of an attempt to get a foothold in strategic sectors of the Tunisian economy uh, to, uh, to burrow in uh, in strategic infrastructure uh, with no regard for Tunisian sovereignty or, or the well-being of the Tunisian people. Um, these are issues that we'd welcome a chance to discuss with the subcommittee in a, in a different setting uh, in greater detail. Um, a fundamental uh, goal uh, and principle of our approach is to uh, address the urgent instability economically and politically uh, that is creating these vulnerabilities. 
Um, and for that reason, seeing a Tunisia that is able to stabilize its economy uh, to consider its path forward with respect to these economic reforms negotiated with the IMF to take the tangible steps necessary uh, to advance constitutional and democratic governance, uh, we really see these as the fundamental actions that will change the trajectory um, and begin to address uh, the significant vulnerabilities that our adversaries are, are trying to exploit there. So the government of Tunisia, the, the current leadership clearly, clearly, clearly recognizes that there's a near-term need to stabilize the economy in order to, uh, if not serve the people, at least strengthen their own position uh, within the government. But at the same time, you have China pulling back on its investments uh, from, from Africa more generally, but more specifically from Tunisia. So I guess the question is, as, as you seek to, to balance uh, these different forces, do you see an opportunity uh, to uh, at once uh, use the opportunity to, to, to in, invest in, in, in Tunisia for purposes of economic stability and, and, and to uh, help the people, but also to push them into a position of, of uh, onto a path of better behavior? With regard to our assistance activities, I would say uh, we are constantly looking at uh, the diplomatic tools that we have, and that includes assistance programs. Um, this is something that, that is not static, uh, but we are continuously looking at um, through the lens of making sure the activities we're undertaking are those that are addressing uh, the economic needs of vulnerable communities, as my colleague spoke to. Um, and contributing to those trying to work towards an inclusive political future. Right. Um, where we have uh, opportunities um, and where conditions may warrant a okay. course correction, that's obviously something. I know you're attempting to answer the question. It's a it's, it's very vague response to an observation that leverage exists, and it may be an opportunity to tie certain investments in Tunisia to better behavior. Uh, as, as the Chinese pull back. Uh, Mr. Chairman? Uh, thanks. We'll do a second uh, round here because I think we've got a few more topics to explore. Let me try to tie a bow on this concern I have about the muddled message we are sending through your funding request. And, and just to maybe follow up on your response, Ms. Doherty, are, are you is our reduction in funding for civil society and human rights? I mean, it's pretty exceptional. We're zeroing out funding for human rights, right? We've got a budget that's, that, that has a zero on the human rights line item for Tunisia. Are, are we doing that to send a signal? Are we doing that because we don't think that we can get money to the people that need it? Or are we doing that because, as you referenced in your answer to my first question, we're going to make up for that money somewhere else? I just don't... I don't quite understand what message we're sending when we're holding military aid constant, but we're reducing aid to civil society. When I hear your testimony, it kind of sounds like if what you were saying was true, we would be seeing a budget request that suggested the opposite. Thank you, Senator. For human rights funding specifically, I'll refer you to my colleague from the State Department, but as it relates to civil society, the new budget figures, they re reflect a few things, uh, some of which you mentioned. One is a changed operating environment. The other is the pivoting away from, we had some quite large scale programs planned with the Tunisian government 
um, that we are no longer doing. Uh, and at the same time, we're using some of our prior year funding. So that's where the $60 million investment in social safety net for vulnerable Tunisian families and the new program that I mentioned that we'll be launching soon, the $25 million scale up for civil society. Let me ask you about, Mr. Harris, about that cut to human rights funding. Senator, certainly uh, human rights is a central aspect of our engagement. That's true worldwide. It's true in Tunisia as well. Uh, with regard to the budget in particular, in addition to the uh, bilateral uh, lines that you made reference to, uh, there is an overall increase in the budget requested uh, for democracy, uh, human rights, and governance programming across the State Department and USAID. Um, that presents opportunities to mobilize in support of the Tunisian people um, and address these very serious issues. That includes issues related to the uh, freedom of expression, uh, the fundamental uh, contributions that a vibrant civil society uh, has to play. Um, so both programmatically and frankly in terms of policy, uh, we see this as, as something quite fundamental that we're doing in Tunisia. Um, in our policy engagements as well, uh, from the secretary on down and all of our conversations with the Tunisian government, uh, this is a central element. And I believe in the request that we've brought forward uh, through this overall global requested increase, uh, we are uh, requesting the tools uh, in order to advance that. Yeah, so I understand that many of these decisions are made by others and not you. Um, so I, I, I understand this is a, this is a broader set of decision makers, but I just don't think that's true. I just don't think it's true that if your primary objective is to support civil society and human rights, that this is a budget that reflects that priority. I, I just don't think that's true. And, and maybe you're right that you're going to find money for Tunisia through some other mechanism, but you know, and the administration knows that when you put a budget that zeroes out funding for that specific line item, people are going to take a message from it. So let me turn to uh, another piece of policy, and that is the pending compact with MCC. Um, the State Department is uh, a board member, and my understanding is that this contract has been on hold since August of 2021, waiting to see how constitutional reforms and parliamentary elections would go. But the benchmarks that we were looking for have come and gone. And from what I understand, the MCC compact is still sort of sitting out there in the ether, a possibility. What's, what benchmarks are we looking for? What are the next benchmarks that will educate the decision we make on the MCC? And isn't the MCC compact still being a potential for Tunisia, another signal that the United States' message uh, on Saeed's march away from democracy uh, continues to be muddled? Mr. Chairman, as you know, the, uh, the MCC board has, has spoken to how it is unable to advance uh, the proposed compact with Tunisia at this time, uh, but certainly uh, has looked forward to the MCC continuing its engagements should conditions evolve. Uh, as the State Department, we uh, have been consulting quite regularly with our MCC colleagues on this matter. One aspect of that coordination reflects that the MCC, of course, is mandated by statute to provide assistance to eligible countries that demonstrate a commitment to just and democratic governance. Uh, as an overall point with respect to our assistance, I would say we... Uh, are continuing to engage with the Tunisian government, reflecting that uh, 
we don't see the possibility of business as usual uh, amid this crisis, and that very tangible steps by the Tunisian government are going to be needed to restore confidence. And the types of specific things that we've discussed in that context uh, are issues related to, for example, um, the uh, trying of uh, civilians in military courts, um, the uh, restrictions, um, uh, perceived restrictions on civil society, um, the uh, uh, targeting of individuals based on allegations of false news, uh, fundamental actions to promote uh, an inclusive political future, um, that is what is going to create the conditions more broadly uh, for us to have the strongest possible relationship with Tunisia. Um, yeah, I think we just may have a difference of opinion as to whether those reforms are possible or whether Said has made a pretty concrete decision as to which direction he is going to push his, his country in. Um, let me ask you to sort of look um, retrospectively. Um, over the course of about 10 years, we spent $274 million on supporting Tunisian democracy, something that we were very proud of as a country. I remember going there with Senator McCain to you know, celebrate the success of Tunisian democracy. Um, Tunisia's, you know, I joked that it's you know, just twice the size of Indiana, but it's still a pretty big country. $274 million is a lot of money to American taxpayers, but it is a relatively small amount of money when you're trying to support a nascent democracy. Um, what lessons do we draw from um, the investments that we made over 10 years in Tunisian democracy that arguably didn't pan out the way that we had hoped. Um, is it a question of misallocating resources? Is it a question of it just not being enough? Is it a question of circumstances on the ground moving in directions with such a strong current that there was no amount of American spending that was going to sort of stop this slide away from democracy? Or is it that that money that we spend can still pay dividends in the future, that we helped support a group of reformers and activists that are you know, still making good trouble and standing up for uh, Tunisian democracy. What, what do we think about the way in which we supported Tunisian democracy for 10 years that looked like a successful partnership that, has now, uh, that now looks a little bit more sour? Senator, I can answer on the assistance side. I mean, this is one of the questions that has been in my mind a lot lately. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons that we've learned looking at Tunisia is in terms of the importance of the long game and these longer term investments. Uh, civil society and democracy, as you know so well from your many years in the region and your service in the world, do, they do not develop overnight. Um, they don't do that in Tunisia, they don't do that in any other country. And what we've seen through various starts and stumbles um, in the decade following 2011 is significant strides from those investments that we've made. The organizations that I remember from the early days in 2011, where you'd have two or three people saying, I want to form a civil society organization. I'm not sure what that means. Um, or people saying, I, I'd like to understand how an actual democratic election works. 
And what we've seen since then, these incredible organizations that have pushed for more accountability, they've influenced legislation. Uh, the first ever Tunisian election observer network has been one of the most impressive ones in the region. They've done truly incredible work. They've mobilized hundreds of, and actually millions of voters and educated people across the country. Uh, and what we're seeing right now is that these are the same organizations, so the same organizations and individuals that are on the front lines of trying to reclaim their country's democracy. So they are countering disinformation, misinformation. As I mentioned, they're continuing to observe electoral processes. Um, I don't think they would be able to do that if we hadn't had that sustained investment over the last decade. But to your question of, okay, then, how did, how did we end up in the place where we are right now? I think, you know, this is not ultimately a resourcing issue. This is not a matter of assistance programs. Some of these drivers are inherently political. Um, let me, Senator Young is on his way back, as I understand, for a second round. Um, let, me, um, let me ask a question of both of you, but I think you previewed it in your, in your testimony, Ms. Doherty, and that's the information space. Um, I was really blown away during my brief visit to uh, Tunisia to learn that I was an agent of Inada. Uh, and that I was simply in Tunisia to front for the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, it was pretty impressive uh, how uh, the misinformation campaign had really overwhelmed uh, the U.S. Embassy there and that they were unable to get out ahead of a narrative that the United States was showing up with a very political partisan agenda that was totally disconnected from reality, completely disconnected from reality. The United States does not play favorites. We do not pick sides. I had no idea who these people were that they claimed that I was aligned with, but the narrative was so powerful. And it was so clear to me that we did not have the tools to set the record straight. Um, I'm the, you know, the, the, the author of the Global Engagement Center uh, I'm a proud believer that the State Department now has more capacities to fight back against propaganda, but maybe describe to me the challenge of the information space inside Tunisia today and what new tools you need and our diplomats need just to make sure that people understand the truth about America's agenda. We clearly have lost or are losing that fight right now, and I'm not sure who's funding all the misinformation, um, that's not all coming domestically. Uh, and maybe you can also suggest to me who's putting all of that false information about the U.S. agenda into the information space. Thank you, Senator. And I will admit, I followed your trip while you were there, and I was also surprised to see some of the headlines and the, the rumors swirling about, uh, about your visit. Um, as you noted, while the information landscape is incredibly fraught right now, um, we have seen a real rise in mis- and disinformation. Um, that's one of the reasons, as part of the assistance pivot that we were describing earlier, we're trying to, to drill more into the countering disinformation, countering misinformation space. So to give you a few examples, um, we've been working with our Tunisian partners who are far more tech-savvy than I, uh, but they have created a fact-checking platform that is being used right now by independent media outlets to help them identify and to combat disinformation and also hate speech. We're also trying to help our partners get certified with um, entities 
like international standard entities like the International Federation of Fact-Checking Networks, the IFCN. So that's a platform that's recognized by most major social media companies and actually helps them take down posts um, in real time much more effectively. We've also been training hundreds of journalists in media literacy and also helping them put out content. So we launched a media literacy broadcast program that is designed to educate Tunisians on how to spot fake news, falsehoods, disinformation. Um, and some of this work has, through our tracking, has reached about 700,000 Tunisians so far, but we're hoping to grow it because it's such an important space for investment. Well, listen, I would, I would suggest that the good work you're doing in this space is reason to double down. Uh, and I would hope that you know, we would look to plus up those capacities in the coming budget. Before I turn it over to Senator Young for a second round, just final question to you, uh, Mr. Harris. Talk a little bit about the Gulf's uh, role and interests uh, in Tunisia. Um, I don't think that they have always been terribly constructive, but at the same time, my impression is that President Saeed was maybe hoping to get more no-strings economic help from the Gulf than he has received, and perhaps he is now you know, more potentially reliant on China, in part because uh, the Gulf is equally as reluctant as the IMF to get in deep to support an economy without reform. Um, but talk to me a little bit about what uh, our Gulf partners' interests are in um, Tunisia and whether they're always aligned with our interests. Senator, what we've uh, seen in our conversations with Gulf partners is a very high degree of concern about the economic instability in the first instance that's playing out in Tunisia. Um, and in a context where the Tunisian government has developed reforms that have won support from the IMF, uh, but as we've seen reflected in President Sayed's own statements, uh, not as yet taken the decision to move forward with that reform program, the, uh, any financial contributions that may be contemplated from the Gulf have not advanced. So our sense is that there is broadly a willingness to support reforms with the IMF. Uh, but the fundamental question of whether or not that happens or goes forward really doesn't rest in Gulf capitals, but, but back in Tunis. The question fundamentally is, uh, is the Tunisian government going to be able to advance its own set of reforms? If so, I think there's a broad range of countries, including some uh, within the Gulf, that would be prepared to support that. Uh, motivated by a serious concern about the consequences of instability. Uh, but those investments can't go anywhere um, if there is not a decision in Tunis to enable uh, the IMF path in the first place. I think, I think that's, that's positive that the Gulf has stayed largely aligned with the IMF goals. I would assume, though, that they you know, have not been as enthusiastic uh, uh, on political reform uh, as they have been on economic reform. Their focus is more on economic reform. They are not whispering in Saeed's ears to reverse the slide away from democratic norms. Well, sir, I cannot speak with any authority to conversations that another government may be having in Tunis. I can tell you in our own conversations with Gulf partners, what, what we are reflecting is that we see economic and political empowerment as fundamentally linked, and that the way to address the economic instability concerns that they're voicing is, on the one hand, certainly to enable this reform program negotiated with the IMF to restore the macroeconomy to health, at the same time and in the same breath, uh, tangible steps to put things on the path of democratic and constitutional governance are vital uh, to address those same instability concerns. I'll turn it over to Senator Young. 
I think that's a very nimble answer. I think it's okay for the administration to say that the Gulf is not as interested in political reform as they are in economic reform. Like, I don't think you're going to make the Gulf upset if you say on the record that the Gulf countries are not terribly interested in midwifing healthy democracies in the in the region. So I, 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 I appreciate your answer. I think that's right, that we believe the two are linked and we continue to make that case. But I, I think we have to understand that our, um, uh, our, our alliance with the Gulf on Tunisia policy is, is limited. There you go. Thank you, uh, Chairman, uh, for the benefit. I, I know our witnesses understand, but anyone else, uh, I had to step out and, and uh, make sure that my constituents were enfranchised. Uh, uh, but it turned out, uh, for the benefit of the Chairman, uh, votes uh, were somehow withdrawn. I'm still trying to figure out this place. <laughs> it was a nice uh, walk. Though. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a nice saunter. Uh, <clears throat> so, I, you know, one of the things I, I would like to explore in light of Tunisia's economic challenges, uh, their high inflation, and uh, the interest uh, so many Tunisians have in, in getting foreign direct in, in investment into the country is uh, this IMF loan. Uh, I understand that blocking the IMF loan could, could uh, at worst case, crash uh, the Tunisian economy, uh, leading to much higher inflation, e even hyperinflation, and uh, default on debt obligations. But with that in mind, Ms. Doherty uh, or Mr. Harris, how involved should the United States be in Tunisia's negotiations with the IMF, and, and how might we use this as an opportunity to require tangible rule of law reforms from President Saeed? Senator, um, I agree uh, with the, uh, the characterization that you described about how central finding a path to address these reforms negotiated with the IMF is. As you know, last year, the Tunisian government, in response to a very serious series of external shocks, including Russia's aggression, compounding uh, decades of deferred reform, developed a reform package uh, that, if implemented, would enable the government to better manage the public wage bill um, to uh, ensure subsidies are targeted to those in greatest need to restore state-owned enterprises to a degree of sustainability and, and health. That program in October of last year, with our active engagement and consultation with the Tunisian government, with the IMF, with international partners, uh, but fundamentally based on the reforms that Tunisia itself developed, uh, won support and enabled Tunisia to conclude a staff-level agreement. Um, as President Said has indicated publicly, he has as yet decided not to move forward with crucial uh, elements of that reform program, and thus that program is unable to advance uh, to the IMF board for approval. Um, and as we were discussing just a moment ago, uh, a number of uh, international partners have generously uh, stepped forward to provide support, but only in the context uh, of that IMF program. So uh, as we're approaching this, and as Secretary Blinken, Assistant Secretary Leaf, others in the administration have communicated directly to Tunisian governments, we're prepared to support Tunisia in moving forward on this reform program. But the fundamental question is, is, is where they are. If Tunisia chooses to do so, there is a fundamental decision point faced in Tunis uh, about these matters. So it's, I'm inferring that the U.S. government is, is prepared to support Tunisia in implementing these reforms, uh, not just so that they can secure consummation of, of the IMF assistance, but also because we believe that 
the reform program would uh, increase uh, the level of stability in Tunisia as opposed to undermining uh, it, as oftentimes fiscal austerity measures do? Certainly. Um, okay. As we're looking at it, a Tunisia that continues to unravel in this way economically where uh, Tunisian uh, individuals and households are struggling to access uh, and, and, and purchase basic consumer goods uh, medicine is, is, is not an environment uh, that is most conducive to uh, the type of democratic governance uh, that we all want to see, uh, nor one in which our other priorities in the country could be advanced. So for that reason, we've been very intensively engaged with the Tunisians to uh, support this reform program. But again, this is a fundamentally a question of Tunisian policy right. and whether or not they choose to proceed. So let's, let's, let's assume the uh, uh, government changes heart, changes its mind, and and... Uh, implements the reform program, receives the, the IMF uh, uh, assistance. At that point, will Pre Pre President Saeed feel emboldened to act with greater disregard from the rule of law? Uh, if yes, why? If not, why not? It's difficult for me to speculate about, about future actions. What I would say is, as we're kind of assessing the situation right now, uh, if Tunisia were to make a decision to move forward with this reform program, and thus the uh, program negotiated last October could go forward to uh, IMF board approval, that would begin to provide just a little bit of breathing room. Uh, Tunisians that are really hurting, uh, that are uh, really hurting economically. I've spent a lot of time in the country, including recently, um, and uh, uh, you feel this on a very visceral level, the human cost uh, of this economic situation is, is very serious. Um, and that directly plays back to the political situation. Even in discussing uh, with Tunisian counterparts uh, the recent elections cycle, um, what we often hear is it is very difficult uh, to put one's full energies and attention behind these very serious political matters and elections process, um, these fundamental questions of Tunisia moving forward with constitutional governance where these very human needs uh, cannot be met in a time of economic unraveling. I can cer certainly understand how one would make either argument, you know, in the wake of, of, of receiving an infusion of, of funds. Uh, that is either emboldening uh, the, the, the president to continue to uh, disregard the rule of law and basic human rights or, or, or going the other direction. So. Um, as, as the administration continues to assess uh, th that uh, important question and resolves the matter, I, I hope they'll be in, in touch with Senator Murphy and myself. Um, <clears throat> how would either of you raise, uh, rate the potential for Tunisia to default on its uh, debt obligations, and what would be the impact of that? We spend a considerable amount of time, uh, uh, both internally and with our Tunisian counterparts, uh, to understand the macroeconomic outlay. Uh, uh, what we've seen in recent months is that the uh, professionals, uh, the Tunisian economic officials, um, are taking the measures uh, that you would expect in a very difficult environment to stabilize to the extent possible the situation. That includes steps to address uh, tax collection. There has been greater domestic borrowing. Um, the uh, overall global energy markets have provided uh, a little bit of additional breathing room very modestly within the Tunisian budget these year. Those are prudent measures 
um, at the same time, they cannot substitute uh, for a sustainable solution. Um, with regard specifically to the, to the debt outlook, um, Tunisia, over the coming year, uh, has a number of external uh, financing obligations. Um, this is simply one another reason, a critical reason, um, why finding a path forward on these economic reforms, if that is what Tunis chooses to, to do, is, is so vital. Uh, thus far, the, uh, uh, some of these extraordinary measures, uh, including uh, domestic borrowing and the use of foreign exchange reserves, uh, uh, have, have limits and simply cannot substitute uh, and really address the, uh, the, those fundamental stability questions. Chairman? Uh, I'll ask, I know Senator Booker's on his way. I'll ask one last question. If he's not here, we can close the hearing uh, down. You guys have been very generous with your time. Um, Mr. Just maybe give uh, an assessment to the committee of the health of the political opposition today. Um, again, these, these are powerful forces um, that can align behind reform, the public employee unions, the bar. Um, but Saeed is also engaged in a pretty deliberate campaign to make it harder for those entities to join together to speak up and to contest the changes he's made. When I was there, again, a long time ago, he was very popular. And my sense is he's maybe not as popular, but he still has a decent amount of support in the country. And so um, what's the state of the, uh, the, the array of individuals and institutions that are opposing the changes he has made to democratic norms, um, and is their liability one of uh, one imposed by Said and his repression, or by a public that is not yet ready to give up on Said and his reform plan? Mr. Chairman, prior to uh, July of, of 2021, um, in our experience, when you asked many Tunisians how things were going in terms of the political health. Um, there is both, on the one hand, a very deep, visceral connection to the freedom of expression uh, and hard-won gains uh, of 2011, and yet, on the other hand, a deep frustration with the unfulfilled uh, realizations, um, a deep frustration uh, with a, the perception of a ruling class um, institutions that, that left many Tunisians behind, uh, particularly with respect to delivering, delivering the tangible uh, economic stability and prosperity. And so in that context, since July 25th of 2021, um, what we've seen is, on the one hand, kind of a real concern about official corruption, about the behavior of elites, the perception of a disconnect between those in power and those that they purportedly uh, would represent. Um, and to some degree, uh, that has been reflected in a recognition that uh, changes in the Tunisian political system are needed. On the other hand, um, the, uh, the issues related to the, the freedom of expression, the shrinking of the space for genuine debate um, is, is a very serious matter, um, and one that, um, uh, to my knowledge and from my own experience, uh, is, is of broad concern. Uh, the hard-fought gains uh, of 2011 um, uh, have, as Secretary Blinken spoken to publicly, to some degree been reversed. Um, and the concern about that closing of space for debate is of broad concern. So at this point, I can't say I think that there's uh, unanimity across the Tunisian space on these matters. Um, I do think on the one hand, there's broad concern about some of these underlying deep systemic challenges, uh, serious challenge, uh, concerns about corruption, uh, and yet a recognition that 
freedom of expression in this vibrant culture is really critical to where most Tunisians would like the country to go. But, but does that space still exist? Are you confident that if the Tunisian people made the decision that they wanted to go in a different direction, that the campaign of repression has not become so effective and limiting that they wouldn't be able to have their way? I think there's no question that we've witnessed uh, an alarming erosion of these democratic norms, um, including with respect to, uh, to, to, uh, to human rights, including the freedom of expression. Uh, that's something that we've heard very clearly reflected in a multitude of conversations uh, with Tunisians in the government and outside of the government. Uh, but at the same time, these are uh, issues of deep emotional resonance, in my experience, with Tunisians. The uh, culture of freedom of expression, the culture of freedom to criticize, to say what you want, to speak your mind, um, is one that is, is very deeply felt. Um, and for that reason, part of our engagement with the Tunisian government since July of 2021 has been to to engage on the fundamental need to repudiate any notion, any uh, self-censorship, any perception that Tunisians will face reprisals for speaking their mind. Um, that's something, an, an ongoing conversation that we're still having with the Tunisian government. Well, thank you both uh, for your testimony today. Thank you for your commitment to uh, the U.S.-Tunisia relationship. Um, we are going to keep the record open for questions until the close of business on Friday, if we get any additional questions, we will forward them to you. And with that, thanks to the subcommittee and the staff, this hearing is adjourned.